Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. On today's episode of the New Books Network podcast, we are speaking to Eden Collinsworth, who is a former media executive and business consultant. Her book is titled, What the Ermines Saw, The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait with Penguin Random House. Collinsworth has been president of Arbor House Publishing Company and founder of the monthly magazine Buzz, and vice president at Hearst Corporation, which served to establish her career in writing repertoire. Collinsworth and Associates is her Beijing consulting company that specializes in intercultural communication. Eden, why did you start writing about the portrait or the portrait painting known as Lady with an Ermine? And when did you start writing? Well, I... um saw the the painting in Krakow, uh, Poland, about three years ago, um, and not, uh, frankly, being surprised that that's exactly where it was, I started to look into how it got there. And um, I came back um, uh, to London, which is where I live, and um, started to look into its history and realized that, you know, frankly, the owners that it had over the course of the 530 years it took to actually arrive in that museum in Krakow, Poland, the the owners were so remarkable and the journey itself was so um, unbelievable that, you know, I I, I felt it was um, something that not only I would be interested in better understanding but and pursuing, but um, that there would be a, a general reading public that might be interested as well. So that that's that's why I, I started it and when I started it. And I, I was researching it and writing it during lockdown, which made it a bit of a challenge, but obviously not impossible. And quite honestly, it gave me a mental life that I wouldn't have already, I wouldn't have otherwise had being locked, locked in my flat for um, close to four months. Who else had you spoken with, especially maybe academic scholars on the topic in preparation for your book? And also have you done extensive interviews with others? Yeah. So I, um, I'm not an art expert or art historian, um, so, um, I, I, I was, I felt very responsible for getting, uh, the story as factually correct as I could, but it was, you know, it was a, a situation where the, the, the picture went missing for 230 years and often is the case, well, almost always is the case that 
the historians and experts correctly um, so uh, hesitate to speculate, uh, you know, on what happens to a painting when it disappears. So I did speak to and confer with a great many, um, you know, known Leonardo experts, um, you know, directors of museums, curators, art historians. Um, I actually uh, was helped enormously by uh, various people, both in Milan and Krakow. And um, so I, I, in my best efforts, I, I, I did the responsible thing. And I also plowed my way through some 60 or 70 books, um, you know, that, that some of which had only tangential connections with my subject, but all were very helpful. No interviews? Yes. Well, I mean, the interviews were part of the process. So I would go to, uh, for example, I interviewed extensively um, the gentleman who organized the um, uh, Luke Sison, who organized or, or was instrumental in organizing the big Leonardo show here at the National Gallery um, that featured Lady with an Ermine which was the last time it actually traveled. And um, he is somebody who has worked at the Metropolitan New York and now is overseeing, you know, the uh, Fitzwilliam uh, Museum in Cambridge. And, you know, he was hugely helpful. And he then in turn, in turn got me to other people with whom I spoke. So, uh, yes, to answer your question, there was a lot of interviewing. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, after we were locked down, most of it was done by Zoom or over the phone, but that didn't diminish the importance of it. And it was all, um, y- you know, usually helpful. Where is the original painting of Lady with an Ermine now? Is it in a museum? Yes, it's in the very museum where I, I, I saw it three years ago, which is the National Museum. It's, a, a, um, it's the Polish National Museum in Krakow, Poland. And um, how it got there is, is quite fascinating. And that, is, that, that really is the journey that I, the narrative journey I took um, and brought, um, one hopes, brought the, the reader along. In terms of uh, in terms of the book, who is the lady of the painting, and can you tell us more about the period, um, which is like the late fourteen hundreds and early fifteen hundreds? Uh huh. Well, uh, the the um, the person I should start with. It's you know difficult to know how far back to go, but you know Italy in that period of time was not Italy as we know it today. It was the it was a, a kind of an assimilation of what are called or were called city states, and so uh, each was run typically by actually a, a, somebody who was previously a mercenary, and um, and and they were you know they they positioned themselves as as in a ducal way overseeing a certain area of of the of what is now Italy. And so um, the man who commissioned the portrait was uh, Luvicchio Sforza, who was the Duke of Milan. And the subject of the picture is a woman by, by the name of Cecilia Carrarina, who in fact was not in, you know, was, was more girl than woman. She was so young. I mean, the, the estimates range from as young as 12 to no, no older than um, 14. And she was um, Luvicchio's mistress. 
at the time, and she was completely remarkable. She um, spoke languages, she wrote poetry, she wrote music. Um, unfortunately, uh, almost always is the case that these remarkable women simply become footnotes, you know, most especially if they're mistresses. And so it was difficult to find much information on her. But the information I did find, you know, indicated a, an absolutely remarkable and person. And what sets this Da Vinci painting apart from maybe his other works? Well, it, it's relatively small, by the way. So it's about 12 inches by 15. And what makes it unique, uh, certainly at the time, was the the fact that she's not looking directly out at the viewer, so to speak, or she's not in profile. She's it, It's as though he's captured her in a moment where she was moving forward, but something has caught her attention and she's looking back. And she's holding, which makes it even you know, more mysterious, frankly, and compelling, is that in her arms, she's holding an ermine, which is you know, a, another way of, 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 of referring to a, an, a, a weasel, a white ermine. And it too has turned you know, in sync and is looking at the same person or object you know, off the picture plane, um, you know, so it, it's incredibly intriguing and unique in that it was the first time a portrait was rendered that way in terms of, you know, how he positioned um, the subject. And the painting changed hands. When did it start as far as it being this legacy of going from one place or person to another? Right. Well, the what happened uh, uh, during the lifetime of of both the person who commissioned it and the subject was that Luvicchio um, Sforza was, which is was was typical um, of the of of the time. He at a young age he was betrothed to another, the daughter of another ducal family, and this was the way they quite quite honestly kept things, you know, the status quo. They simply intermarried. So it was a form of diplomacy, and um, and he had no choice in the matter. Um, and and although I think he was p- passionate and in, in love with um, of Cecilia, uh, um, she had to go, and so you know she left the castle, and um, she left with the portrait. Um, and so there's a safe assumption that. It, it 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 was kept within her family, although it just went missing. I mean, there's no way of really verifying that. And the next um, recorded owner was this hugely unconventional a Polish princess um, whose son bought it for her while he was in Italy. So again, it's safe to assume that regardless of who was owning it during that period of time, because he purchased it in Italy, it it might have very well remained there, although you know there are all sorts of other rumors. But you know it's impossible to verify much of anything. So it it was held uh, through very turbulent times, uh, privately within this uh, pol- a very aristocratic Polish family, which is you know to to shoot forward to the present time, which is the reason it in fact is in a in, in now at the museum in Krakow. The family um, in 2012 or 13 
um, donated their collection, including this remarkable picture, to the Polish nation. And that, that's why it's in the museum in Krakow. An earlier episode here explored Tuscany as a financial center in the world. How is the House of Medici a financial center? Well, you know, Florence positioned itself as as a merchant republic, and it did this by establishing these trade routes with Syria and Egypt and Arabia, and it was the the wool guilds in in uh, Milan. I'm so sorry, in uh, Florence that provided the Medicis with a very lucrative textile business. And they were the first to create what is now known as the double booking system for tracking credits and debits. They were incredibly capable and astute financially, and they moved um, into the financial services, so to speak. And by the 15th century, the Bank of Medici was the largest in Europe. And it was their patronage that uh, underwrote the artists and musicians and architects um, of of um, uh, you know uh, of the city. So they were, you know, primarily they were the responsible party for actually putting the city on the map in terms of you know it's you know everything that had to do with the arts. Also, you wrote about Vinci, which is the birth town of Da Vinci. How did Vinci influence his art? Well, he he was born there, and and you know, uh, to to be clear, he was illegitimate. So he, he was the, you know, his father was a, a young um, man who of a from a prosperous family, who had an you know a kind of a one night stand with um, a, a a local girl. And, and so um, he was brought up by this young man's um, uh, parents. Um, and uh, in other words, it was, his, it was the, the grand, his, Da Vinci's grandparents who really brought him up. And he lived in um, Da Vinci until, um, until he was 12, at which point he joined his father in Florence. So he didn't really, I mean, Vinci is a is a small kind of mountain town uh, on the outskirts of, or not far, I should say, from Florence. So I would say that there was, you know, other than living there, it it didn't really impact, it didn't influence his art. Give us insight into Da Vinci's design of Milan and those sanitary arrangements that you write about. What happened after the plague? Well, you know, it was, um, even though this was during the Renaissance and there were huge advancements made, um, the, for the most part, the, 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 the big swatches of the population didn't enjoy those or, you know, weren't given the opportunity of, of utilizing all of those advantages. And so Milan was fundamentally a very o- overcrowded city of districts, which, you know, had very kind of filthy, dank, narrow lanes uh, that that allowed very little sunlight in. And so, uh, it, frankly, it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise that there was a plague. And um, so it was Leonardo who identified uh, the issue to be a, a sanitary one, you know, that had to do with a sanitary sanitation problem. And he... Um, 
did a variety of things. He invented uh, laboratories with revolving windows for ventilation and underground, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, canals to carry away human waste. But after the plague subsided, and it took about two years, he presented all of these incredibly imaginative, innovative advancements to uh, Levicchio in the hopes to be funded, and Levicchio wasn't interested, so nothing came of them. And he moved on to other things because Leonardo was in a constant forward motion of invention. Another early topic here has been the act of invention. What were some of da Vinci's renowned inventions that were in his journal? And also, can you describe his journaling? Well, I mean, what's he? This is somebody who I believe is is the most, or has was, and continues to be. I think the most creative genius of human history, and he was in. He was. You know what? What propelled him always was this insatiable curiosity. So, if you you know, there are countless notebooks. There are if you see them in actuality, uh, which I have seen. You know, they were there was a, a, a display of them in the Louvre um, at the at his 500th year anniversary of his death, I should say. And they are remarkably small. They're, they're, they're kind of tiny, frankly. And as you may know, he wrote uh, in cursive handwriting that was reversed. So you'd have to hold it up to the mirror to, you know, to begin to understand it. Um, and it was, they were, the, the, the point was that he was these notebooks were for his purposes. He wasn't particularly interested in sharing uh, any of these inventions. Um, but and they and they they're so numerous, it's impossible to give you a figure. But they ranged from lifting gear that would operate by air pressure, uh, new methods of heating, including a stove. Uh, uh, he invented a fly, you know the precursor to a flying machine and swimming belts that were, again, precursors to life vests. But he also invented war machinery. So, you know, he invented a kind of tank. He, he, he envisioned deadly gas that could be used to kill armies. So he was extremely um, agnostic in terms of, of uh, the kind of inventions that he, he devised. What about Celia's reputation historically what is it about her that made her the perfect portrait well you know as as i said it's it's extremely i mean she didn't know she was she has not been historically depicted in any whole, you know uh, holistic way so you know she's identified probably I, I'm convinced of it but you know the confirmation you know is yet to be made that she was the subject of this portrait um, she is referred to by the court poets um, as this quite extraordinary young woman and so we know a little bit, bit about her um, for that reason. Um, she is, if you, if you, you don't have to study the portrait very long to, to see that she was staggeringly beautiful and very self-confident in an early age. And I think that's what makes the portrait so compelling that you're seeing more than her physical 
a physical rendition of her. Um, you're seeing, you know, something rather more profound. She, you can, you know, you have a sense of who she is by looking at that portrait, I believe. And coins? There were portraits on coins. How are some of those made? <laughs> well, the, the the portraits on the coins uh, were were fundamentally kind of calling cards, frankly, or an indication that you know you were an important personage. And um, so often was the case, obviously, that these the dukes would have them made. Um, uh, but, it, you know, in the case to which I referred, it was Ile- Isabel d'Estate, who was a very formidable, another one of these very formidable women who was quite determined to leave her mark. And so she had a coin. And they're, you know, basically they're, you know, they're, I wouldn't imagine that they would be any larger than a 50 cent coin in America. But um, she had her, you know, she wanted to project uh, a an image of herself that was, you know, very serious. Uh, she fa- deliberately faced in the direction as men do when, you know, uh, you know, um, that were depicted on these coins, uh, in the same direction. So she was taken quite seriously, and she looks as though she's fairly fierce, frankly. Um, but uh, you know, really no nonsense. And so um, that that's how the coins were used. The intention was to you know, indicate a certain level of prestige and authority. And they were distributed, you know, left, distributed to other important families. And and, um, so that that was their fundamental purpose. Why did the Habsburgs become part of your history of the painting? Well, you know, the, the 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 years the, the over the two centuries the picture was went missing um there are rumors as to where it might have gone and so what what makes it rather unusual is that leonardo was always famous in other words during his lifetime he was famous and almost always is the case most especially with a famous painter um, it's copied, you know, the, 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 he, he, he painted relatively few pictures. So he, there were 15, uh, four of, of which were portraits of women. And in this particular case with this particular portrait, it was never reproduced. And so, you know, almost always is the case that, you know, young painters will, will, will copy it, or at the very least it will be, rendered in, you know, in a, in a, an illustration or, or, you know, uh, and, 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 and nothing, it just, so that, that is extremely unusual. So the, the, the reason why there, there's speculation that it might have somehow made its way to, or an awareness of it might've made its way to the UK is that there is, uh, when, um, uh, uh, Holbein was drawing the Thomas More family. Um, one of the daughters to the furthest to the right um, to, has exactly the same pose as Cecilia does in uh, Lady with an Ermine. And so I don't think, frankly, it left Italy, but you know, it's a very unusual situation where that unique pose 
reappears, you know, in another in another uh, portrait, or no, this was a group portrait. So that that's the that's how you know people are allow themselves to speculate on whether or not it actually made its way, or an awareness of it, you know, was known in in the UK. And then also France. I know, or we know that Da Vinci uh, was in a valley of France. Yes, um, he uh, his last patron was the King of France, and he left Italy for the first time in his life uh, when he was sixty, and he traveled to the Loire Valley, which is was his last resting place, so to speak, and that is where he died, and. Um, What's interesting is that he he often never really kept he kept on working on portraits, and so the portrait that he took with him that he was still working on was the Mona Lisa. It was a um, commissioned portrait. He couldn't. He felt as though he couldn't quite get it right. Um, he ironically, or you know, he, he kept on changing the smile, and so when he finally finished it in France. The man who commissioned it, who was the, the, the husband of the woman in the portrait, um, decided he didn't like it or I don't, it, was, it was too late or I don't know why it was just, it was never then sent back. It was kept in France and, and the king either bought it or appropriated it, which is why it is in the Louvre in, in Paris. What did Poland's downfall then have to do with the portrait? Well, you know, Poland has been, um, it's been assaulted from every conceivable um, border it has by all its surrounding um, so-called neighbors. And uh, there were three partitions of Poland. Um, Fundamentally, it was Russia and and, um, uh, Germany. and um, so, uh, and Austria. And so um, there was a point at which after the third partition, there was simply no more Poland. I mean, it literally was, you know, erased from the map. And the aristocratic, the noble family that, that, that owned the portrait uh, initially hid it um, um, you know, when the Russians um, uh, came through to, par- you know, partition yet more land. And eventually it was, it was literally sent uh, in exile to Paris, where um, the family then um, was living. And they bought um, this remarkable uh, estate. You know, it's, it's the Hotel Lambert on the Ile Saint-Louis. And so this, this portrait was there for 30 years without people really, uh, was certainly the Parisians not knowing about it. Um, it then came back to Poland when things settled down, only to be hidden again in anticipation of the First World War. It then came out of hiding and went you know, right back in, um, in anticipation of Hitler's invasion of Poland. It was then um, put on Hitler's, you know, wish list. He um, made very clear to the uh, Gestapo that, that he wanted it found, and they eventually located it. And um, he declared it, you know, his property. But he, he then loaned it 
to um, his kind of lieutenant, his right-hand person who was in Poland um, as the as the um, the the um, um, general, the governor general, which w- was his title, uh, and his remit was to you know destroy. <laughs> The, the the Polish uh, culture um, to you know um, enslave many of its citizens and to kill as many Jews as possible and so this really coagulation of human evil by the name of Hans Frank uh, considered himself a a great art expert and and very much wanted this painting to hang above his uh, his desk and Hitler loaned it to him. And at the end of the war, um, when the Allies, you know, uh, um, came after him, they found him in, you know, with a, in, in, he, he fled to his Bulgarian um, country estate and they found him in the, you know, in a back room. And the only other thing in the room with him was this picture. So, um, it, you know, it, it's had the most remarkable history. And why did the November uprising fail? Well, it was, you know, without sounding too glib, it was just crushed by the Russians. I mean, they they didn't really have a chance. Um, And um, I mean, the Poles, it's an interesting, I I learned a great deal that I I, I didn't know, frankly. Um, And I've lived, you know, in Europe for Quite a while, so I felt slightly ashamed that I wasn't as well informed as I should have been about Poland. But they're incredibly admirable people, and they and they have never never surrendered. Um, and I think that's why, even during the Second World War, where they were literally hiding, they were you know uh, as an underground effort. The, the, whoever wasn't being you know incarcerated or killed, they were hiding in the forests um, and attacking you know as best they could. Uh, unlike, with all due respect to the French, unlike the French, they they never surrendered to the Nazis. And I, my sense is that one of the reasons they were very early to 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 step in and support the Ukrainians crossing the 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 you know the the border into Poland was because they they have an oral history of of, of what it's like, frankly. But I find them, you know, apart from the policies that I don't necessarily agree with, uh, you know, in a contemporary sense, uh, because they they really have shifted to the right of things. But but the people are, uh, you know, have proven time and again to be very brave, frankly. How did Ball at Warsaw examine the painting in 1952? Um and how also beyond that, 1952, what did they do to restore the painting? And also, what is the cradle? Well, I'll answer the last, your last question first. A cradle is, I mean, the just to step back, uh, often was the case that most, especially with Leonardo pictures and 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 and, and pictures that were painted you know, in that time period, 14th and 15th century, they were painted on panels. So the lady with an ermine is painted on a walnut panel, a wooden panel. And unsurprisingly, uh, over the course of, you know, the many years, um, it either is warped or... um, And so the... um, 
A cradle is a is a is a wooden device that that's attached in the back that frankly holds holds the the the, the picture together um, and prevents further warp warping and um, you know so it 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 makes it sturdy and you often you're not seeing it when you're looking at a picture because you're you know you you don't you don't see what's behind it but often is the case that 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 a cradle has been attached at some point um and to answer your i think it was the second way uh, the the ball was in fact was at the national gallery in washington and so what happened was after the cold war um the the uh, it was still uh, uh, you know theoretically the uh, because it was in uh, Poland uh, during you know Stalin's communism um, it was technically speaking after after Stalin died still a property of, of still a Russian property so to speak um, but when the when the uh, uh, the Cold War um, thawed so to speak in the early fifties. The agreement was to send. It was the first time this picture was ever seen in the West, and it was um, it was sent to the National Gallery in Washington. And at the time, um, it, they took full advantage of it because they had very sophisticated equipment. And this fellow Ball was in charge of uh, of of examining it very closely with all this, you know, rather more sophisticated equipment. And he confirmed the fact that it was on a walnut panel. He confirmed the fact that originally the background was a light kind of muted gray, uh, but nobody understands why or when it was painted over. And um, to answer your, I guess, first question last, uh, you never during the course of examining this portrait was it ever um, corrected or there was no real need, and and so it is completely original. It, it does not, unlike some other pictures by Leonardo, um, it, it was never um, you know touched afterwards. It, there wasn't any revision or or you know other than this fact that the background was reprinted in in ways that nobody can quite explain. What museums emerged out of this timeline, especially in Poland, but also throughout Europe? And what uh, museum displays were most notable for you? Well, as soon as, as I said, as soon as the Cold War subsided, it started to travel. And, you know, the criticism was that it was traveling too much, but it did come it actually went to Moscow to uh, not the Hermitage, but the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. It then was allowed to come to the National Gallery in Washington. It came back to America. It went in to all places. Uh, although I, I don't mean to sound condescending, but it was unusual to 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 learn that it went to Milwaukee. I'm not quite sure. It went to Dallas. It it went went to Italy. It so it it moved around. Until finally, um, experts, you know, were concerned about the fact that it was on a plane so much because the altitude absolutely disrupts, you know, the 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 paint pigments and so on and so forth. It's not it's not a great thing to do is to to move it around to that degree. And so the last time it it was it was shipped anywhere was this remarkable. Um, uh, uh, 
exhibit of Leonardo's work while he was in Milan here in London at the National Gallery. And even with this uh, very important exhibit at the Louvre uh, several years ago to mark his 500th uh, anniversary of his death, they it was not sent, which was a disappointment to the Louvre, but uh, completely understandable. So I don't think it's going to move again. I think it's it's in Krakow, and that's where he's going where it's going to stay for, uh, you know, f- for many, many, many years. How is the history of Hitler's Nazism part of his love of art? Do you know of Hitler's history as a fledgling artist? Well, he wanted to be an artist, but he was rejected. Um, and I think that he never quite got over that. But he um, he then thought of himself as a great art collector. He uh, thought that that would be an indication of the, his level of sophistication. Um, and that then influenced his uh, coterie of you know, uh, Gerling, it was any number of people who surrounded him, then also wanted the prestige of, you know, owning, um, uh, looted, by the way, um, you know, masterpieces. And so um, there was a kind of a, you know, a a hideous, well-oiled machinery that was established to loot um, and steal art. And it was, you know, it was incredibly efficient and really, frankly, horrifying. But um, a great deal of it was returned. Some of it is missing. Uh, some of it has been destroyed. But, you know, they, they, they basically emptied out 90% of the masterpieces in Europe during the course of, of the war. And what else happened to the painting of Lady with an Ermine? during World War II? Well, as I said, it was once it was found by the Gestapo, uh, you know, the, the, which was that the order came from Hitler, it was, it was given on loan to Hans Frank, and then it was retrieved by the American, um, you know, the Americans who tracked him down. It was then... Um, a warehoused. Um, unfortunately, this all transpired immediately after the war, when basically Stalin was given Poland, and um, and so he thought of it as bourgeois. So it didn't really, uh, you know, it was warehoused yet again. But at least it was safe. And then in the fifties, it was allowed to be seen. Um, and so that that's, you know, that's what happened. Um, during and immediately after the war, the Second World War. Were there fears that the painting would be lost? I know it wound up in America for a time. And you mentioned Milwaukee. No, it w- it was moved around um, to museums. So it was never lost. It was hidden a lot, you know. Um, but once, after the Cold War, and, and once it was officially returned to the family, um it, it, w- it was never unsafe. It was just, it was precarious to be moving it around, but it was also, it was always guarded. And, um, and in that way, you know, it, it was, it, it was safe. And since we've been talking about the painting of Lady with an Ermine, what else are you working on? Uh, do you have anything else planned? And do you recommend for readers 
our listeners to this podcast to maybe look at some of your other work? Oh, well, that's very kind of you to ask. Actually, I am. I, I, I you know, this is what happens. Uh, and it's not a complaint, but it's like anything, you know, you work on, you work very hard to make things look easy. And then you wait for, you know, it, whether it's a book or a, a movie or a theater performance, you, you know, you kind of wait for the reviewers to weigh in and then you wait for the public to weigh in. And then you then you end up doing it all over again. So I, I, I have moved, uh, I'm grateful for it, but I have moved from one book to the next without any, uh, you know, break, frankly. So my, my next book was signed uh, shortly before this current book came out. And it is a, by, uh, uh, again, it's a narrative nonfiction, um, about this extraordinary American woman who was born after the Civil War, dirt poor in Ohio, who became a child clairvoyant. Um, and, then, and then she ran for president and she started a, a, a brokerage house and she you know, traveled across the country to the gold rush in California. And she ended up in, here in the UK you know, for the last 50 years of her life, and in ways that are just kind of staggering, she ended up suing the British Museum for libel, which is how I heard about her. So again, this is a story of an individual who, you know, is is weirder than any fiction you could possibly invent. And, um, and that is due to the publisher in another year and a half. And so that's what I'm working on now. I'm, I'm a bit of a generalist, so I don't, what I write about are subjects that interest me or I, I can't figure out. And I, I'm, I'm trying to better understand myself. And in, in the process, I, I, I hope to engage the reader, you know, to join me in the journey, so to speak. So the first book I wrote was a novel. Um, I then moved to China to to write a book for for the uh, Chinese about Western business etiquette or you know deportment or whatever, and I was there for a year. The book was censored, um, so I was there for a year until it came out, and then it became a bestseller and has, is I think still used by the University of Peking, uh, the MBA program, but. While I was there, I realized that my own value system had nothing to do with, uh, you know, the way uh, the, the Chinese um, did business uh, or, frankly, anything else. My, my mind was a very, uh, you know, predictable kind of Judeo-Christian sense of right and wrong. And what I realized was there was a great deal of what I would call moral relativism uh, that was baked into a, you know, into the mentality, uh, for all of the obvious reasons there, you know, it's, they're Buddhists for the most part, there is no, uh, religion per se. And they, they just have an entirely different approach, um, to such a degree that there, if you, if you look at the old Chinese, Mao, um, you know, simplified it during the Cultural Revolution, but with the old Chinese, the word for 
white has got another character in it, which is the character for black. And so there is no black and white. There's just this kind of gray area. And I, and I, what, what prompted me to, to write my next book was the realization. This was, um, you know, that, uh, the, oh, first of all, I wrote a, I, I, um, a memoir of my year in China called I Stand Corrected. And then after that, my next book was about modern morality because, <clears throat> excuse me, I realized that this was when Trump was kind of bubbling up to the surface as a, as a possible presidential candidate. And I, and I began to think that, well, maybe my own values didn't, weren't applicable anymore in my own country. And so I, I decided to interview people who had made very unusual moral choices in business, in politics, in any number of things. And then, um, and then I fell upon this, this, this portrait. So, you know, I go from one thing to the next as a generalist, but I, as, as somebody who, 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 you know, is, is interested and, and trying to figure it out myself. And if someone wants to go see the painting, how should they do that? Going to Krakow? <laughs> yeah, if they want to see it in person, that's the only way they're going to do it. They'd have to go to Krakow, Poland, which, by the way, is a wonderful trip. Uh, and it's a wonderful city. So I would, but, you know, um, I mean, obviously you can see any number of images of it. Uh, you just have to Google and what comes up in public domain, you know, is a very high res image of it. And you can see how, how compelling then, it is. Do you have any final thoughts for the NBN audience? No, I'm just very encouraged that, you know, people are reading. <laughs> I used to be a book publisher. And so I'm now on the other side of the table, so to speak, and things have changed so dramatically, you know, since I used to publish and edit books. And I'm even more appreciative of the writers now that I am writing myself. But I, I you know, I, um, I'm very encouraged that people are, 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 are reading. Um, I, I'm equally concerned, you know, well, I, I should use the word appalled, but I'm trying to modify my language here, that, um, that there are books being banned. I, I, I could not have imagined that happening in America, but it is. So, you know, that's happening as well. New Books Network and Nathan Moore thank Eden Collinsworth for an interview on her book, What the Ermin Saw, The Extraordinary Journey of Leonardo da Vinci's Most Mysterious Portrait. To hear more podcast episodes on history or other topics, please go to the website at newbooksnetwork.com.